Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm glad that you're all here, and I hope that um, you don't get tired of me over two lectures back to back. Um, so first, we're going to be talking about pediatric and geriatric dosing and the considerations um, in those two special classes of patients. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that a lot of kids who are on LDN um, and a lot of geriatric patients, not uh, whether they're on LDN or not, are chronic, uh, chronic care patients. They have chronic caregivers that are stressed out also. I do actually find myself treating caregivers a lot, too, um, for their chronic stress, chronic sleep deprivation, increased rates of illnesses. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the uh, patients. And so there's a huge social impact on people that are chronically ill. With kids, they've actually shown in research that they develop less social skills than other children do. And in geriatric patients that are chronically ill, they tend to withdraw from society. Both of these things are very detrimental to mental health and to overall health. And anything that we can do that helps to improve their overall health and their chronic disease states is enhances ev every aspect of their lives. Um, I want to encourage all the practitioners here to be good advocates for your chronic care patients. By definition of being here at the LDN conference, um, you probably already are, but it's a very time-consuming thing to do to take on these chronic care patients, whether they're pediatric, geriatric, or other ages. Um, children that grow up with chronic diseases face a lot of stigma. Um, they have, like I said, less social interactions with other children. They are um, less able to have normal interactions, don't have as many friends. Simple approaches to disease processes are often ignored. Um, contributing factors are usually not addressed in chronic disease states. So we have a kid with juvenile arth arthritis and they're on the d disease modifying drugs, but no dietary um, discussions, no treatment of their gut issues, no treatment of sleep. So these are things that a primary care advocate can really help with. A lot of my patients that I see are, their primary care advocate is their gastroenterologist. I was just talking to a lovely gastroenterologist just a few moments ago who takes on a lot of these um, patients that are dealing with multiple disease states. And I'm seeing a lot more of that, of specialists beginning to um, treat patients who have um, chronic disease states and trying to treat them with overall health and wellness. And so that's what I uh, really want to stress is the importance of treating these overall conditions and how lotus naltrexone can be a part of that. Also, in patients who are, have chronic diseases, 
very many of them have uh, nutrient deficiencies from the medications that they're on. There's a great book called Nutrient um, Nutrient in, Induced. Um, just a minute drug-induced nutrient deficiency syndromes. And it tells, a, it lists each drug and the nutrient deficiencies that are known to occur from chronic use of these medications. And this is something that I think is important. Low-dose naltrexone does not cause any nutrient deficiencies, I believe, because it's so low-dose. But other long-term medications do. And so treating these nutrient deficiencies that result from the long-term medications can actually decrease the side effects of the medications. And then especially in geriatric patients, patients that are on more than three medications are highly likely to be experiencing some interaction or some side effect that is not noticed. And so anything that we can do, like low-dose naltrexone, that decreases their medication usage helps to improve their overall outcomes and their disease states. Um, low-dose naltrexone helps in a lot of chronic conditions in patients of all types. It has uh, virtually no harm. It stabilizes inflammation, which is an important part of every chronic disease process. It improves sleep. I know that sleep is one of the biggest side effects um, that we often talk about when low-dose naltrexone is started, but with new research that I understand is a about to come out, um, low-dose naltrexone may not have quite the, Im quite the detrimental impact on sleep that, um, that we understand it to have. But not only that, long-term use of low-dose naltrexone, in most of my patients that I've observed, is once we've tapered up, they are actually sleeping better and deeper. Now, this is super important because sleep is when your body repairs and regenerates. It's when your immune system is most functional. We know from research that it's when the glymphatic system, which is the, it's your lymphatic system in your brain, is most functional. And decreased sleep or interrupted sleep is a trigger or a factor that worsens most, if not all, disease processes. So treating sleep is important, and I really want everybody to understand that low-dose naltrexone over long-term can actually help sleep. Um, it also improves moods. If people's moods are better, they're more likely to be socially in interactive. They're more likely to be out and doing things. Um, they're more likely to... Um, to be interacting positively with the world. And depression is the changes that your brain undergoes with depression are detrimental to chronic disease states. Lotus naltrexone also, and this is something that, um, that I like to focus on, is that lotus naltrexone actually decreases the methylation damage to DNA. That creates the epigenetic changes that lead to disease. Let me try to explain that a little bit. Epigenetic changes means that it's how your genetics are changed over your lifetime. Most disease states are epigenetic diseases. That means that you're born with the genetics that increases your risk for disease, but you can think of that risk factor as being turned off when you're born. Methylation is what turns that disease state on. 
Lodos naltrexone actually blocks that methylation change to DNA. So that's a pretty powerful treatment. I like to use low-dose naltrexone as a first approach in my patients. Um, if they get to me before they've been started on other disease-modifying or immunosuppressing or anti-inflammatory or steroid drugs, low-dose naltrexone is my go-to. It's often my go-to even if they are started on those things, but it's my go-to treatment um, as a first line. I like this because it can prevent the use of more dangerous side effect-ridden medications. It's capable of actually treating some of the root causes. So we've been hearing this morning from some of these wonderful presenters about the uh, modification of the Th1, Th2 pathways, how uh, low-dose naltrexone uh, decreases these inflammatory cytokines and interleukin uh, overproduction in uh, autoimmune diseases. So um, it's actually, tr and then I'm just bringing up about the methylation with the DNA. So low-dose naltrexone is actually treating the, the, the modifying states or the first steps that are leading to these disease processes. Very often there's good compliance because of the lack of side effects, especially in patients, of course, that aren't having side effects with it. Um, of course, anything that you have a very good response to, again, as we've heard this morning, patients will go off of it when they think they're feeling better. But once they go back on it, you can usually keep them on. It can be used long-term with no risk of side effects. Um, although it's um, being considered more and more by specialists, right now there aren't too many specialists or mainstream doctors or PCPs considering it. Um, because of the building research on it, it's easy to defend to colleagues. And so I've had patients that go into the hospital, go into a psychiatric facility. I can get their doctor on staff to prescribe this medication if I get a chance to talk to them in person. So this is something that I can, I, it, I find it easier to defend than some of the um, other integrative therapies. Some of the special considerations in dosing that you need to consider with these class of medications, pediatrics and geriatric patients, is body weight may not be the best way to decide in children what their dosing for low-dose naltrexone should be. And we're seeing higher rates of obesity in children. Um, I haven't been checking obese children for Lyme, but I might want to start doing that based on Hol Dr. Holtorf's discussion. But oftentimes we'll see kids are actually uh, have, a, or adults too, will have a low muscle mass and be obese. So what we should consider um, in children is a little bit different. We'll get to that on the next slide. Also, patients that are sensitive to medications or, or, or who have had vaccine reactions, we need to consider a dosage change on them. Compliance is a small, has a small impact in low-dose naltrexone, and route of administration needs to be considered. So for body weight, in patients who are obese, like as I mentioned, they can have muscle wasting. So the body weight can be an unreliable way of getting a dosage for them. So in obesity, especially for children, what I like to do is to use the ideal body weight. So I've had young children. Um, I had a nine-year-old that, oh, I'm sorry, he was eight, and he weighed 130 pounds. And so this very 
um, sick child, if we once we tried to get him at 130 pounds, he should have been on 100. Uh, sorry, 4.5 milligram dosing. This was before I realized this. When I tried to do that, he had problems. He didn't sleep well. He had stomach upset. Um, He wasn't doing as well in school. I don't know if that was because he wasn't sleeping well at night. But his side effects never got better after a couple weeks. So that's what prompted my research into this area. We used ideal body weight for him, and on that dosing, he did much better, and he was able to get on the low-dose naltrexone and to stay on it. So in adults, if we're talking about geriatric population, what we're looking at if they're obese, and sometimes also if they're underweight, considering their muscle mass. So if you have, say, an elderly person who's very underweight, you might dose them lower. So with underweight, with muscle wasting, I tend to decrease the dosage by 1.5 to 5 milligrams. So that would be between 3 and 4 milligrams. In regards to sensitivity, if patients have a sensitivity to medications, if they have multiple food sensitivities, multiple sensitivities to supplements and herbs, if they have sensitivities to chemicals, additives, smells, your multiple chemical sensitivity patients, very often they need to be dosed at lower uh, dosages. Or also patients that have a history of a vaccine reaction or certainly multiple vaccine reactions. So if any of these are true for your patient, you want to consider starting them on lower dosages and tapering them up more slowly. If they have primary or a serious gastrointestinal illness, you may want to consider doing creams or gels. They may not be absorbing things very well through their gastrointestinal tract with the enterocyte damage, and so dosing them with creams and gels can be of big benefit to them. Compliance, I'm going to talk about the the actual dosing schedule in just a minute. So compliance is not much of a problem with low-dose naltrexone, but I do like to tell my patients that going on and off low-dose naltrexone will prolong their side effects. So if they have difficulty sleeping as they taper up and then they go off for a couple weeks while they're on vacation and come back home, they're going to probably have to start tapering again. They won't be able to go back on the 4.5 milligrams. Um, Side effects are usually minimal, usually short-lived. I'm talking about the majority. There are certainly a minority of my patients that have difficulty with long-term side effects on low-dose naltrexone or unusual side effects, but it very certainly is the minority of my patients. And so assessing willingness to be compliant and consistent with the protocol is important. Um, Route and dosage administration for patients that can't swallow pills or, again, that have gastrointestinal problems. Um, The pharmacists here can tell you a lot more about this, but when I was looking into liquid dosing for my patients, I found that it was much more expensive to do it that way, and that the liquid dosage expires sooner. So you can't get as much of it at a time. I'm usually prescribing the pill form or cream form in a three-month Um, uh, prescription so they can get three months at a time. With the liquid form, my understanding is, and and, uh, this may need to be corrected, but my understanding is that the liquid form only lasts for about a month. 
so then they can't get those extended prescriptions that help to reduce the cost. Um, creams and gels are usually preferable in this instance. So the way that you want to dose a cream or a gel is very similar to the dosage in pill form. So you start with your full dosage, whether that's going to be four, three, two milligrams per milliliter, and you start at a quarter of the dosage. So this is fairly easy to do if it's in a syringe. So you start at a quarter of a gram every week to two weeks, you increase that dosage until they're taking a full milliliter. And that full milliliter is their full dosage. For children, again, remembering that it's ideal body weight and not overall body weight if they're overweight, your dosing is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Um, for adults, I like to decrease that depending on how sensitive they are, depending on how much muscle wasting they have. I may start at 0.05. There should be a zero in front of the 7.5, so I'm sorry about that. Um, so I like to decre decrease that to 0.05 or 0.075 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. That's their full dosage. And then... For sensitive patients, um, you start at a quarter of the dosage, leave them at a quarter of a dosage for two weeks before you tape up, taper up by another quarter. So they would start at, it, let's say it's a four milligram dosage that you're tapering them up to. You would start at one milligram or one quarter of a milliliter if it's a gel form and they would stay on that for a week, and then you would go up to two, then three, and then four, every one to two weeks. After, if I have a very sensitive patient, and they, we started them at a 0.05 milligrams per kilogram, if they're on that dosage for one to three months, and they're doing well, but we want to see if we can get a better benefit on a higher dosage, I usually wait at least a month before I will increase them to the next dosage. Okay, I think I practiced this before I started. I think I got uh, within the time slot allotted. Um, if any of you have any questions about this, you can email me. That's very hard to read um, under these lighting conditions. It's drwindham at rmg.life or Dr. Wyndham, doctor is spelled out at iCloud.com. So you can reach me at either of those places. Psoriasis is um, something that I have seen a lot of in my practice, both as a primary and as a secondary concern that patients have. Um, and I probably a lot of you see it too. Um, the science in psoriasis is evolving like everything else. And the newer things that we're looking at are IL-23, T17, and, and IL-1. So what's happening in psoriasis is a little bit of a shift in our scientific understanding. So th for those practitioners out there who have been kind of keeping up with this, this first slide or two is for you. So what they've recently discovered in research is that um, the dendritic 
um, cells themselves are stimulating secretion of IL interleukin-23. And that is the interleukin-23, which is signaling the entire process of psoriasis. So IL-23 is a hot topic right now in psoriasis because it, it looks like it's the major or one of the major triggering processes starting the whole disease. The IL-23 then promotes T-regulatory cells to differentiate into T-17 cells, and that's what promotes the inflammatory cascade of psoriasis. There's another um, scientific change in, the, in uh, the process of psoriasis, and that is in cells that are undergoing rapid cellular death, which is one of the hallmarks of psoriasis, they were thought to create an inflammatory process just from the die-off. But in recent research, it has been discovered that these cells that are dying early are actually secreting interleukin-1, and that the interleukin-1 that's secreted by these cells is, again, part of the process that's creating the inflammatory cascade that then becomes psoriasis. It is a Th1 dominant pathway, um, which we've talked a lot about Th1 and Th2 pathways, and we don't have too much time to talk about that today. Um, psoriasis is an epigenetic disease. So again, epigenetic disease, diseases are diseases that uh, you're born with a genetic propensity to develop, but those genetics have to be turned on by triggers or factors that you experience during your lifetime. The methylation of DNA is what turns on these risk factors, and methylation is a product of oxidative damage. Oxidative damage, in its turn, is triggered by environmental factors. So some of the known environmental factors that can trigger or um, turn on the methylation of the DNA in psoriasis are infections, especially strep infections, stress, skin injuries, and certain medications. But there are other triggers that can turn this process on as well. So diet and food sensitivities, these vary per patient, but every one of my patients with psoriasis gets treatment, uh, testing for and treatment of food sensitivities. Um, the most common uh, triggers are gluten and grains, sugar, alcohol, uh, dairy, which I'm sorry, that's not on here, and low healthy fat intake. So if you have a patient, like I have some that can't test due to cost, we will start with elimination of the most common triggers. The microbiome is all of the bacteria in your gut. It's actually all the bacteria in and around your human body. But we usually condense that when we're just talking about the gut. The microbiome is one of the major triggers of oxidative stress. We're finding that with neurodegenerative diseases, skin diseases, autoimmune diseases, cardiovascular diseases, starting with a microbiome imbalance. So the microbiome is becoming more and more important in management of chronic disease processes and also in maintenance of health. So this oxidative stress that started with microbiome imbalance again, creates an inflammatory cascade and the immune system imbalance that leads to the methylation changes. So this is another trigger for um, autoimmune diseases and psoriasis. 
While nutrient deficiencies are not well studied in psoriasis, there are many people that benefit from supplementation of antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, and most especially vitamin D as the single most beneficial nutrient. And then environmental toxicities are things that I am often or practically always testing my patients for when they have autoimmune diseases. So environmental toxicity is becoming more and more important as a disease-activating process as our environment becomes more toxic. There are also exacerbating factors. So these things may not methylate the DNA, may not turn on the epigenetic risk, but they do exacerbate the disease process. So smoking, depression, hormonal imbalances, sleep disorders, and chronic stress. So I listed stress here twice, once as an exacerbating factor and once as a causative factor. So you can, in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, we're getting a lot more research into stress and its impact on the immune system, the neurologic system, the microbiome, and now even through these systems on your DNA. So very um, important to work with your patients regarding stress management, which is something that I'm constantly doing. Psoriasis is a serious disease process. It's not just a skin disease. So people with with psoriasis have higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of gastrointestinal problems and other autoimmune diseases. Of course, they can get psoriatic arthritis, which is a particularly debilitating and painful form of arthritis. And recent research, because uh, we're in September, I was able to put this into my slides. In August, there was just research indicating that patients with psoriasis plaques on 10% or more of their bodies have death rates, overall death rates from all diseases of 1.7 times higher than the average population. So this is a disease process that is not just painful and, and not just unsightly to patients, but is actually very dangerous. And traditional treatments inadequate. One in five people are not adequately treated with medications. And the reason for this is the same as in all autoimmune diseases. Most traditional approaches try to block some process that's happening. So in research right now, they're looking for a block to IL-23. What we have found in research is that if you block one interleukin, one cytokine, one pathway, your body responds by upregulating the other pathways. So this is not an approach that works. So the American Academy of Dermatology has their uh, treatment approach here, which you see doesn't include any of the exacerbating factors that lead to the disease process. And so those are the things that I'm trying to get everybody to think about, and which most of you or all of you already are if you're here at this conference. So other avenues in exploring treatment for psoriasis, low-dose naltrexone, um, thymulosin alpha, which is thymus gland extract that Dr. Holtorf was talking about. Um, and they've actually shown in research that thymulosin alpha-1 is actually low in patients that have psoriatic arthritis. Amniotic stem cell therapy is a uh, therapy that helps to modify autoimmune diseases. 
Um, autologous stem cells, that is stem cells that come from yourself, don't work in people with autoimmune diseases because of the factors that Dr. Holtorf mentioned, and also because many or most people with autoimmune diseases actually have stem cell dysfunctions. Those stem cell dysfunctions, we don't know at this point whether they're born that way or whether it's a result of the disease process. There are multiple supplements that decrease the damage at the cellular level and improve symptoms and help to modulate the immune system. Um, sometimes IV nutrients can be really beneficial to patients. So what, especially if they have gastrointestinal problems, they may not be absorbing all their nutrients very well. So if we can enhance their absorption of nutrients by giving them some of these nutrients by IV or IM, it can really help them to improve their outcomes more quickly. And then treating depression and other psychiatric illnesses is something that I am always looking for in patients. So in my um, intake form of patients, we just have a, a short little form about how they're doing mentally. Many of my patients, I would estimate 80%, have some symptoms of depression or anxiety or brain fog or chronic fatigue that aren't to do with their primary reason for coming in to see me. Those things need to be treated directly. I call this a top-down approach. Um, many of you are familiar with the neurologic and immune system being so tightly connected. That's what psychoneuroimmunology is all about, is this connection between the brain and the immune system. And the health of the brain impacts the immune system directly and vice versa. So I am often treating, uh, utilizing neurofeedback to evaluate what's going on with a patient's brain and to help their brain to stabilize. And stabilizing brain health stabilizes immune health. Not 100%, but it helps as an important part of the picture. So treating brain health is extremely important. Lodos naltrexone works specifically by modulating the Th2, Th1 pathways. And we learned in the earlier slide that psoriasis is a Th1 dominant pathway. It modulates the interleukins and the inflammatory cytokine productions, which are uh, the important part of activating the cascade of psoriasis. And while there's no specific research on low-dose naltrexone and IL-23, which is the, the current favorite right now as the activating factor, um, IL-23 is known to respond to opioids through the opioid growth factor. And so that's upgraded with low-dose naltrexone. So that's a potential way that low-dose naltrexone may be helping specifically in psoriasis. To talk to you about, there's a scant amount of research about um, psoriasis. There is no research that I'm aware of that I could find on psoriasis and low-dose naltrexone. However, um, there are a lot of patients that are treated with low-dose naltrexone and psoriasis. I'm going to tell you about a few of mine. So this was a 68-year-old male who had psoriasis for over 20 years when I met him. Um, he had had psoriatic arthritis for 10 years, and he was worsening. Even on biologics, steroids, and DMARDs, he had increasing pain, increasing debility. He had coronary artery disease, hypertension, peripheral artery disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and prediabetes. 
So when we started him on low-dose naltrexone, which I did on his first visit, he had improvements in his pain, a decrease in his IBS symptoms, and his plaques were beginning to get a little bit better. That was in the first um, that was in the first two months. It took him two months to get back to see me. Um, so a small improvements, even early, which psoriasis doesn't always respond early. So I was actually surprised he got such an er- a good early response. Um, his other triggers, though, he had sleep apnea. I have a very high suspicion of sleep apnea in all of my patients. Sleep apnea is not always for people who are just obese. So if they're on more than two medications for blood pressure, these are the things that make me suspicious and I'll test. Two medica- more than two medications for blood pressure, labile hypertension, multiple cardiovascular um, disease processes, um, if they have daytime fatigue and brain fog, and if they, um, if they are having difficulty losing weight, even if they're not obese. So if they're doing all the right things and can't lose weight. And then, of course, snoring or waking multiple times at night, even if they think it's because they're urinating. They shouldn't be urinating more than once a night, even with a prostate problem. So when we did all of these things, his disease state went to about 20% of what it was after about a year. Um, I'm going to breeze through these quickly because I've got no time left. So this was a um, five-year-old who had psoriasis, sorry, a 16-year-old that had psoriasis beginning at five. His parents had done much before he got in to see me, um, but he was still getting worse. Um, With low-dose naltrexone, his joint pain improved. His sleep improved, the plaques improved, and became less um, less painful. Um, at 16, I'm sorry, this is not the patient. I, I thought I was talking about the 11-year-old. At um, This was a 32-year-old. So she had, I was wondering why she had hormone imbalance. Um, <laughs> um, so sorry about that, everybody. Um, so I get for trying to go fast. And adrenal fatigue, environmental toxicity, high stress, and sleep deprivation. So when we treated these things, this patient actually has, at this point, no psoriasis. Um, she only has, and she had psoriasis on almost 10% of her body, and just bending her knees, her knees would crack and bleed. Um, and this person had psoriatic arthritis, like I said, beginning at age 16. So this was quite an extraordinary case. I've also treated um, very young patients um, who do very well, but again, we have to look at those contributing factors. Psoriasis often doesn't respond to just one form of treatment, so you have to treat the whole system. And then um, in older patients, it works just as well, even if that's not their primary reason for coming in. And I'm sorry, I have to um, cut it short, but a a good treatment plan, um, you're going to try to address all of these things for your patients with psoriasis or other autoimmune diseases. Thank you. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.